Dracula by Bram Stoker. Presented by the Oakville Players. Previously, reports of a blue lady abducting children catches Van Helsing's eye after he meets the Harkers. Mina transcribes her husband's diary and Van Helsing asks them to join him in London. Van Helsing and Dr. Seward look into the children's wounds and observe a white figure amongst the gravestones and an empty coffin in Lucy's crypt. Along with Arthur and Quincy, they enter Lucy's tomb and dispatch the vampire with a stake through the heart. But there remains a greater task, to find out the author of all this sorrow and to stamp him out. Episode 7, Anything So Hunted. Nights hence, you shall meet with me and dine together at seven of the clock with friend John. I shall entreat two others, two that you know not as yet, and I shall be ready to all our work show and plans unfold. Friend John, you come with me home, for I have much to consult about. When we arrived at the Berkeley Hotel, Van Helsing found a telegram waiting for him. I'm coming up by train. Jonathan at Whitby. Important news. Mina Harker. Ah, that wonderful Madame Mina. She arrive, but I cannot stay. Tonight I leave for Amsterdam, but shall return tomorrow night, and then begins our great quest. She must go to your house, friend John. You must meet her at the station. Telegraph her en route, so that she may be prepared. Over a cup of tea, he told me of a diary kept by Jonathan Harker when abroad, and gave me a typewritten copy of it, as also of Mrs. Harker's diary at Whitby. Take these and study them well. When I have returned, you will be master of all the facts. What is here told may sound the knell of the undead who walks the earth. Read all, I pray you, with an open mind. Then we shall go through all these together when we meet. Shortly after, he drove off to Liverpool Street. I took my way to Paddington, where I arrived about 15 minutes before the train came in. The crowd melted away after the bustling fashion common to arrival platforms and I was beginning to feel uneasy lest I might miss my guest, when a sweet-faced, dainty-looking girl stepped up to me. Dr. Seward, is it not? And you are Mrs. Harker. I knew you from the description of poor dear Lucy. I got her luggage, which included a typewriter, and we took the underground to Fenshirt Street, after I had sent a wire to my housekeeper to have a sitting room and bedroom prepared at once for Mrs. Harker. In due time, we arrived. She knew, of course, that the place was a lunatic asylum, but I could see that she was unable to repress a shudder when we entered. She told me that, if she might, she would come presently to my study, as she had much to say. So here I am, finishing my entry in my phonograph diary whilst I await her. As yet I have not had the chance of looking at the papers which Van Helsing left with me, though they lie open before me. I must get her interested in something so that I may have an opportunity of reading them. She does not know how precious time is, Oh, what a task we have in hand. Journal, 29th September. After I had tidied myself, I went down to Dr. Seward's study. At the door, I paused a moment, for I thought I heard him talking with someone. As, however, he had pressed me to be quick, I knocked at the door. To my intense surprise, there was no one with him. He was quite alone, 
and on the table opposite him was what I knew at once from the description to be a phonograph. I had never seen one and was much interested. I hope I did not keep you waiting. I heard you talking and thought there was someone with you. Oh, I, I was only entering my diary. I keep it in this. As he spoke, he laid his hand on the phonograph. I felt quite excited over it. Why, this beats even shorthand. May I hear it say something? You helped to attend dear Lucy at the end. Let me hear how she died. I shall be very grateful. She was very, very dear to me. To my surprise, he had a horror-struck look in his face. Tell you of her death? Not for the wide world. I wouldn't let you know that terrible story. Then it was terrible. My intuition was right. For a moment, I thought, and as my eyes ranged the room, they lit on a great batch of typewriting on the table, the parcel I had given the professor. You do not know me. When you have read those papers, my own diary and my husband's also, which I have typed, you will know me better. I have not faltered in giving every thought of my own heart in this cause. He is certainly a man of noble nature. Poor dear Lucy was right about him. He stood up and opened a large drawer in which were arranged in order a number of hollow cylinders of metal covered with dark wax. You are quite right. I did not trust you because I did not know you. I know that Lucy told you of me as she told me of you too. Take the cylinders and hear them. The first half dozen of them are personal to me and they will not horrify you. Dinner will by then be ready. In the meantime, I shall read over some of these documents and shall be better able to understand certain things. He carried the phonograph himself up to my sitting room and adjusted it for me. Now I shall learn something pleasant, I am sure, for it will tell me the other side of a true love episode of which I know one side already. 29th September. I was so absorbed in that wonderful diary of Jonathan Harker and that other of his wife that I let the time run on without thinking. Mrs. Harker was not down when the maid came to announce dinner. I had just finished Mrs. Harker's diary when she came in. She looked sweetly pretty, but very sad, and her eyes were flushed with crying. This somehow moved me much. Of late I have had cause for tears, God knows, but the relief of them was denied me. I, I greatly fear I have distressed you. Oh, no, not distressed me, but I have been more touched than I can say by your grief. That is a wonderful machine, but it is cruelly true. It told me in its very tones the anguish of your heart. No one must hear them spoken ever again. See, I've tried to be useful. I've copied out the words on my typewriter, and none other need now hear your heartbeat as I did. No one need ever know. Shall ever know. Ah, but they must. It is part of the terrible story, a part of poor dear Lucy's death and all that led to it. Because in the struggle which we have before us to rid the earth of this terrible monster, we must have all the knowledge and all the help which we can get. I think that the cylinders which you gave me contained more than you intended me to know. But I can see that there are in your record many lights to this dark mystery. You will let me help, will you not? Your diary only took me to 7th September, how poor Lucy was beset, and how her terrible doom was being wrought out. We need have no secrets amongst us, working together with absolute trust. You shall do as you like in the matter. God forgive me if I do wrong. 
There are terrible things yet to learn of, but if you have so far travelled on the road to poor Lucy's death, you will not be content, I know, to remain in the dark. Nay, the end may give you a gleam of peace. Come, there is dinner. We must keep one another strong for what is before us. We have a cruel and dreadful task. Journal, 29th September. After dinner, I came with Dr. Seward to his study. He brought back the phonograph from my room, and I took my typewriter. He placed me in a comfortable chair and arranged the phonograph so that I could touch it without getting up and showed me how to stop it in case I should want to pause. When the terrible story of Lucy's death and all that followed was done, I lay back in my chair, powerless. When Dr. Seward saw me, he jumped up with a horrified exclamation and hurriedly gave me some brandy, which in a few minutes somewhat restored me. It is all so wild and mysterious and strange that if I had not known Jonathan's experience in Transylvania, I could not have believed. Let me write this all out now. We must be ready for Dr. Van Helsing when he comes. I have sent a telegram to Jonathan to come here when he arrives in London from Whitby. I think that if we get all our material ready and have every item put in chronological order, we shall have done much. I began to typewrite from the beginning of the seventh cylinder. It was late when I got through, but Dr. Seward went about his work of going his round of the patients. When he had finished, he came back and sat near me, reading, so that I did not feel too lonely whilst I worked. How good and thoughtful he is. The world seems full of good men, even if there are monsters in it. Journal 29th September, in train to London. It was my object to trace that horrid cargo of the Counts to its place in London. Later, we may be able to deal with it. Mr. Billington had ready in his office all the papers concerning the consignment of boxes. I saw the invoice and took note of it. Fifty cases of common earth to be used for experimental purposes. I then saw the station master who kindly put me in communication with the men who had actually received the boxes. Their tally was exact with the list. Thirtieth September. Mr. Harker arrived at nine o'clock. He is uncommonly clever. If this journal be true, he is also a man of great nerve. That going down to the vault a second time was a remarkable piece of daring. After reading his account of it, I was prepared to meet a good specimen of manhood, but hardly the quiet, business-like gentleman who came here today. After lunch, Harker and his wife went back to their own room, and as I passed a while ago, I heard the click of the typewriter. They are hard at it. Mrs. Harker says that they are knitting together in chronological order every scrap of evidence they have. I must go, they are here to speak. Strange that it never struck me that the very next house might be the Count's hiding place. Goodness knows that we have had enough clues from the conduct of the patient Renfield. 
A bundle of letters relating to the purchase of the house were with the typescript. Oh, if only we had had them earlier, we might have saved poor Lucy. Stop, that way madness lies. Harker says that by dinner time they will be able to show a whole connected narrative. He thinks that in the meantime I should see Renfield, as hitherto he has been a sort of index to the comings and goings of the Count. What a good thing that Mrs. Harker put my cylinders into type. We never could have found the dates otherwise. I found Renfield sitting placidly in his room with his hands folded, smiling benignly. At the moment he seemed as sane as anyone I ever saw. I sat down and talked with him on a lot of subjects, all of which he treated naturally. He then, of his own accord, spoke of going home, a subject he has never mentioned. I am darkly suspicious. All those outbreaks were in some way linked with the proximity of the Count. Stay, he is himself Zufugus, and in his wild ravings outside the chapel door of the deserted house, he always spoke of a master. I mistrust these quiet moods of his. So I have given the attendant a hint to look closely after him, and to have a straight waistcoat ready in case of need. Journal, 30th September. When I arrived at King's Cross in the morning, I was able to ask the station master about the arrival of the boxes, and I saw that their tally was correct with the original invoice. Of one thing I am now satisfied that all the boxes which arrived at Whitby from Varna in the Demeter were safely deposited in the old chapel at Carfax. There should be 50 of them there, unless any have since been removed. Journal, 30th September. I am so glad that I hardly know how to contain myself. I saw Jonathan leave for Whitby with as brave a face as I could, but I was sick with apprehension. The effort has, however, done him good. He was never so resolute, never so strong, never so full of volcanic energy as at present. I feel myself quite wild with excitement. I suppose one ought to pity anything so hunted as is the Count. That is just it. This thing is not human, not even beast. To read Dr. Seward's account of poor Lucy's death and what followed is enough to dry up the springs of pity in one's heart. Later, Lord Godalming and Mr. Morris arrived earlier than we expected. It was, to me, a painful meeting, for it brought back all poor dear Lucy's hopes of only a few months ago. Of course, they had heard Lucy speak of me, and it seemed that Dr. Van Helsing, too, has been quite... Blowing my trumpet, as Mr. Morris expressed it, I told them that I had read all the papers and diaries. I gave them each a copy to read in the library. It does make a pretty good pile. Did you write all this, Mrs. Harker? I don't quite see the drift of it. I have had one lesson already in accepting facts that should make a man humble to the last hour of his life. I love dear Lucy, and I know what she was to you and what you were to her. She and I were like sisters... And now she is gone, will you not let me be like a sister to you in your trouble? I know what sorrows you have had, though I cannot measure the depth of them. Won't you let me be of some little service, for Lucy's sake? In an instant, the poor dear fellow was overwhelmed with grief. It seemed to me that all that he had of late been suffering in silence found a vent at once. I felt an infinite pity for him and opened my arms unthinkingly. 
With a sob, he laid his head on my shoulder and cried like a weary child whilst he shook with emotion. We women have something of the mother in us that makes us rise above smaller matters when the mother spirit is invoked. I felt this big, sorrowing man's head resting on me as though it were that of the baby that someday may lie on my bosom, and I stroked his hair as though he were my own child. After a little bit, his sobs ceased, and he raised himself with an apology. He told me that for days and nights past, he had been unable to speak with anyone as a man must speak in his time of sorrow. None other can ever know how much your sweet sympathy has been to me today. I shall know better in time, and believe me that, though I'm not ungrateful now, my gratitude will grow with my understanding. You will let me be like a brother, will you not, for all our lives, for dear Lucy's sake? Aye, and for your own sake. If ever the future should bring you a time when you need a man's help, believe me, you will not call in vain. As I came along the corridor, I saw Mr. Morris looking out of a window. He turned as he heard my footsteps. How is Art? Ah, I see you've been comforting him. Poor old fellow. He needs it. I wish I could comfort all who suffer from the heart. Will you let me be your friend, and will you come to me for comfort if you need it? You will know later on why I speak. I saw the manuscript in his hand, and I knew that when he read it, he would realize how much I knew. It seemed but poor comfort to so brave and unselfish a soul, and impulsively I bent over and kissed him. The tears rose in his eyes, and there was a momentary choking in his throat. Little girl, you'll never regret that true-hearted kindness, so long as ever you live. Little girl, the very words he used to say to Lucy. Thirtieth September. I got home at five o'clock and found that Godalming and Morris had not only arrived, but had already studied the transcript of various diaries and letters which Harker and his wonderful wife had made and arranged. Mrs. Harker gave us a cup of tea, and I can honestly say that for the first time since I have lived in it, this old house seemed like home. Dr. Seward, may I ask a favour? I want to see your patient, Mr. Renfield. Do let me see him. What you have said of him in your diary interests me so much. I could not refuse her, and there was no possible reason why I should. So I took her with me. When I went into the room, I told the man that a lady would like to see him. Why? She is going through the house and wants to see everyone in it. Oh, very well. Let her come in by all means. But just wait a minute till I tidy up the place. His method of tidying was peculiar. He simply swallowed all the flies and spiders in the boxes before I could stop him. She came into the room with an easy gracefulness. She walked over to him, smiling pleasantly, and held out her hand. Good evening, Mr. Renfield. Dr. Seward has told me of you. He made no immediate reply, but eyed her all over intently with a set frown on his face. This look gave way to one of wonder, which merged in doubt. You're not the girl the doctor wanted to marry, are you? You can't be, you know, for she's dead. Oh, no. I have a husband of my own. I am Mrs. Harker. Then what are you doing here? My husband and I are staying on a visit with Dr. Seward. Then don't stay. But why not? Looking at my watch, I saw that I should go to the station to meet Van Helsing. So I told Mrs. Harker that it was time to leave. Goodbye, and I hope I may see you often, under auspices pleasanter to yourself. Goodbye, my dear. 
I pray God I may never see your sweet face again. Van Helsing steps from the carriage with the eager nimbleness of a boy. Ah, friend John, how goes all? Well, so I have been busy, but I come here to stay if need be. As I drove to the house, I told him of what had passed, and how my own diary had come to be of some use through Mrs. Harker's suggestion. Ah, that wonderful Madamina! She has man's brain. A brain that a man should have were he much gifted, and a woman's heart... The good God fashioned her for a purpose, believe me, when he made that so good combination. Friend John, up to now, fortune has made that woman of help to us. After tonight, she must not have to do with this so terrible affair. It is not good that she runs a risk so great. We men are determined. Nay, are we not pledged to destroy this monster? But it is no part for a woman. And so now, up to this very hour... All the records we have are complete and in order. The professor took away one copy to study before our meeting. The rest of us have already read everything, so when we meet in the study, we shall all be informed as to facts and can arrange our plan of battle with this terrible and mysterious enemy. Journal, 30th September. We met in Dr. Seward's study after dinner. Professor Van Helsing took the head of the table. He made me sit next to him on his right and asked me to act as secretary. Jonathan sat next to me. Opposite us were Lord Godalming, Dr. Seward, and Mr. Morris. You're all acquainted with the facts that are in these papers? Then it were, I think, good that I tell you something of the kind of enemy with which we have to deal. There are such beings as vampires. Some of us have evidence that they exist. I admit that at first I was skeptic. Alas, had I known at first what I know now. One so precious life had been spared. But that is gone. And we must so work so that other poor souls perish not. The Nosferatu do not die like the bee when he sting once. He is only stronger, and being stronger, have yet more power to work evil. This vampire, which is amongst us, is of himself so strong in person as twenty men. He is of cunning, he is brute, and more than brute, he can, within limitations, appear at will, then and where, and in any of the forms that are to him. He can, within his range, direct the elements, the storm, the fog, and the thunder. He can command all the meaner things, the rat and the owl and the bat and the wolf. And he can at times vanish and come unknown. How then are we to begin our strike to destroy him? For if we fail in our fight, he must surely win. And then, where end we? It is that we become him. That we henceforth become foul things of the night like him, without heart or conscience preying on the bodies and souls of those we love best. To us, forever, are the gates of heaven shut. For who shall open them to us again? I am old, and life with his sunshine 
his fair places and his love lie far behind. You others are young. What say you? My husband looked in my eyes and I in his. There was no need for speaking between us. I answer for Mina and myself. We will fight. Count me in, Professor. I am with you for Lucy's sake, if for no other reason. Dr. Seward simply nodded. The Professor stood up and, after laying his golden crucifix on the table, held out his hand on either side. I took his right hand and Lord Godalming his left. Jonathan held my right with his left and stretched across to Mr. Morris. So, as we all took hands, our solemn compact was made. We too are not without strength. We have on our side the power of combination, a power denied to the vampire kind. We have sources of science. We are free to act and think, and the hours of the day and night are ours equally. These things are much. Let us consider the limitations of the vampire in general, and of this one in particular. All we have to go upon are traditions and superstitions. For let me tell you, he is known everywhere that men have been. In old Greece, in old Rome. He flourished in Germany, all over, in France, in India, and in China. Let me tell you that very much of the beliefs are justified by what we have seen in our own so unhappy experience. The vampire live on and cannot die by mere passing of time. He throws no shadow. He make in the mirror no reflect, as Jonathan observe. He has the strength of many of his hand. Witness again, Jonathan, when he shuts a door against the wolves. He can transform himself into wolf, as we gather from the ship arrival at Whitby. He can be as bat, as Madame Mina saw on the window at Whitby and as my friend Quincy saw him in the window of Miss Lucy. Ah, but hear me so. He can do all these things, yet he is not free. He, who is not of nature, has yet to obey some of nature's laws. He may not enter anywhere at first, unless there be someone of the household who bid him to come. His power ceases, as does all of the evil things at the coming of the day. He can only change himself at noon, or at exact sunrise or sunset. In this record of ours, we have proof by inference. Then there are things which so afflict him that he has no power, as the garlic that we know of. And as for sacred things, as this symbol, my crucifix, as for the stakes to him, we know already of its peace, or of the cut-off head that giveth rest. We have seen it with our eyes. Thus, when we find the habitation of this man that was, we can confine him to his coffin and destroy him. We know from the inquiry of Jonathan that from the castle to Whitby there came 50 boxes of earth, all of which were delivered at Carfax. We also know that at least some of these boxes have been removed as the patient Renfield attacks those workers. It seems to me that our first step should be to ascertain what remain in the house, or whether any more have been removed. If the latter, we must trace... <coughs> Sorry! I fear I've alarmed you. It was an idiotic thing of me to do, and I ask your pardon, Mrs. Harker, most sincerely. While the professor was talking, there came a big bat and sat on the windowsill. I've got such a horror of the damned brutes from recent events that I cannot stand them. Did you hit it? I don't know. It flew away into the wood. 
As I was saying, we must trace each of these boxes. And when we are ready, we must either capture or kill this monster in his lair. Or we must, so to speak, sterilize the earth, so that no more he can seek safety in it. And now, Madam Mina, this night is the end. Until all be well, you are too precious to us to have such risk. When we part tonight, you no more must question. We shall tell you all in good time. We are men and are able to bear. But you must be our star and our hope. And we shall act all the more free, knowing that you are not in danger, such as we are. All the men, even Jonathan, seem relieved. But it did not seem to me good that they should brave danger and perhaps lessen their safety through care of me. But their minds were made up, and though it was a bitter pill for me to swallow, I could say nothing, save to accept their chivalrous care of me. As there is no time to lose, I vote we have a look at this house right now. Time is everything with him, and swift action on our part may save another victim. I own that my heart began to fail me when the time for action came so close, but I did not say anything, for I had a greater fear that if I appeared as a drag or a hindrance to their work, they might even leave me out of their councils altogether. They have now gone off to Carfax with means to get into the house. They told me to go to bed and sleep, as if a woman can sleep when those she loves are in danger. I shall lie down and pretend to sleep, lest Jonathan have added anxiety about me when he returns. First October, 4 a.m. Just as we were about to leave the house, an urgent message was brought to me from Renfield to know if I would see him at once, as he had something of the utmost importance to say to me. I've never seen him so eager. I don't know, but if you don't see him soon, he will have one of his violent fits. All right, I'll go now. I asked the others to wait a few minutes for me, as I had to go and see my patient. Take me with you, friend John. His case in your diary interests me much, and it had bearing too, now and again, on our case. I should much like to see him, and especially when his mind is disturbed. May I also come? Me too. May I come? We found him in a state of considerable excitement, but far more rational in his speech and manner than I had ever seen him. We all four went into the room, but none of the others at first said anything. His request was that I would at once release him from the asylum and send him home. This he backed up with arguments regarding his complete recovery and adduced his own existing sanity. I appeal to your friends. They will not mind sitting in judgment on my case. Lord Godalming, Mr. Quincy Morris of Texas, what shall any man say of his pleasure at meeting Van Helsing? Sir, I make no apology for dropping all forms of conventional prefix. When an individual has revolutionized therapeutics by his discovery of the continuous evolution of brain matter, conventional forms are unfitting, since they would seem to limit him to one of class. You, gentlemen, who by nationality, by heredity, or by the possession of natural gifts, are fitted to hold your respective places in the moving world. I take to witness that I am as sane as the least of the majority of men who are in full possession of their liberties. I think we were all staggered. For my own part, I was under the conviction, despite my knowledge of the man's character and history, that his reason had been restored. I thought it better to wait, however, before making so grave a statement, for of old I knew the sudden changes to which this particular patient was liable. 
so I contented myself with making a general statement that he appeared to be improving very rapidly, that I would have a longer chat with him in the morning. But I fear, Dr. Seward, that you hardly apprehend my wish. I desire to go at once, this very hour, this very moment, if I may. He looked at me keenly, and seeing the negative in my face, turned to the others and scrutinized them closely. Then I suppose I must only shift my ground of request. I am content to implore in such a case, not on personal grounds, but for the sake of others. Could you look, sir, into my heart? You would approve to the full the sentiments which animate me. Nay, more you would count me among the best and truest of your friends. I had a growing conviction that the sudden change of his entire intellectual method was but yet another form or phase of his madness. And so determined to let him go on a little longer, knowing from experience that he would, like all lunatics, give himself away in the end. And Helsing was gazing at him with a look of utmost intensity, his bushy eyebrows almost meeting with the fixed concentration of his look. Could you not tell me frankly your real reason for wishing to be free tonight? If you satisfy me, a stranger with this habit of keeping an open mind, Dr. Seward will give you the privilege you seek. I assure you, take it from me that they are good ones, sound and unselfish, and spring from the highest sense of duty. Oh, come, sir, bethink yourself. You claim the privilege of reason in the highest degree, since you seek to impress us with your complete reasonableness. If you will not help us in our effort to choose the wisest course, how can we perform the duty which you yourself put upon us? Be wise and help us, and if we can, we shall aid you to achieve your wish. Dr. Van Helsing, I have nothing to say. Your argument is complete, and if I were free to speak, I should not hesitate a moment. But I am not my own master in the matter. I can only ask you to trust me. If I am refused, the responsibility does not rest with me. Come, my friends, we have work to do. Good night. As, however, I got near the door, a new change came over the patient. He moved towards me so quickly that for the moment I feared that he was about to make another homicidal attack. My fears, however, were groundless, for he held up his two hands imploringly and made his petition in a moving manner. He threw himself on his knees and held up his hands, wringing them in plaintive supplication, and poured forth a torrent of entreaty, with the tears rolling down his cheeks and his whole face and form expressive of the deepest emotion. Let me entreat you, Dr. Seward. Oh, let me implore you to let me out of this house at once. Send me away, how you will and where you will. Send keepers with me in whips and chains. Let them take me in a straight waistcoat, manacled and leg ironed, even to jail. But let me out of this. Woe is me. I may not tell. For the sake of the Almighty, take me out of this and save my soul from guilt. Can't you understand? Don't you know that I'm sane and earnest now? That I'm no lunatic in a mad fit, but a sane man fighting for his soul? Oh, hear me! Let me go! Come, no more of this. We have had quite enough already. He suddenly stopped and looked at me intently for several moments. Then without a word, he rose and moving over, sat down on the side of the bed. You will, Dr. Seward, do me the justice to bear in mind that I did what I could to convince you tonight. Dracula, the Radio Play miniseries. Episode 7, cast. Kenneth Sergianko as Dr. Seward. Robert Harrower as Van Helsing. 
Heather Smith as Mina. Manir Maliknur as Jonathan Harker. Duncan Cairns as Quincy, Arthur, Renfield, attendant. And I'm Tina Aurora. Directed and edited by Robin Sadavoy and produced by Alex Ragozino for the Oakville Players. For information about Creative Commons licensed music used in this episode, see the episode description. Sound effects from Pixabay and freesound.org. When he had finished, he came back and sat near me reading so that I did not feel too lonely whilst I f***ing worked. (laughs) Sorry, sorry.